10 News at 10 with Trevor McDonald. Labour landslide sweeps Blair into Downing Street. Major steps down and finds time to watch some cricket. And the children will be moving in at number 10. Good evening. Tony Blair was carried into Downing Street today on a political landslide and on a wave of Labour jubilation. It shall be a government rooted in strong values, the values of justice and progress and community, the values that have guided me all my political life, but a government ready with the courage to embrace the new ideas necessary to make those values live again for today's world. In May 1997, Tony Blair was one of Britain's youngest ever Prime Ministers. I was elected the following month. When I was leader of the opposition and he was leader of the opposition, we decided to have a series of meetings quietly, both in Dublin, in the Gresham, later on in my office in Leinster House, in his office in Westminster and in the House of Commons to exchange our views about politics, where our countries were going and what perhaps we could do if we were ever elected. In this episode, I sit down with Tony to look back on that path to peace. Hey, Betty. How are you, Tony? I'm good. I'm fine. How are you? Uh, you're looking fit and well as always, huh? I'm getting older. <laughs> I'm Bertie Hearn, Taoiseach of Ireland from 1997 until 2008. And this is the story of the Good Friday Agreement as I remember it. Episode 4 the hand of history. It was like a breath of fresh air had suddenly swept into the room. There was a new dynamic. All of the ingredients were there. Two fresh governments coming in with yourself uh, as Taoiseach and Tony Blair as Prime Minister. There was a sense of optimism that for the first time with a huge majority, Tony Blair had the opportunity to start afresh and to inject some dynamic enthusiasm into the process. Tony Blair's election as Prime Minister in May, your election as Taoiseach in June, momentum now came. The power of the leadership shown by Tony Blair and yourself, to be honest with you, was absolutely fundamental and pivotal to the whole thing. You were both in your 40s and you had a real sense of energy and momentum and also a bit of a sense that you were experienced politicians as well, though you knew there was a there was a time and a tide here now while you were still relatively new in office that you could do this in sporting parlance, game on. I sat down with Tony recently over Zoom to have a broad look back at the roles he and I played in the story of the Good Friday Agreement. I suppose... Tony, we, we, if we were talking about the history of Northern Ireland, we'd, we, we'd have, we'd need a week and we don't have that. So um, I think we best, we best started uh, where you and I, um, uh, it wasn't our start because we worked in opposition together. We did a number of meetings, you know, in, in opposition and um, I remember those fondly. But uh, we'd start maybe, Tony, when you were elected in, in May 97 and you clearly from the outset made Northern Ireland a, a priority and uh, one of the very first things you did was come to, to, to Belfast. So maybe we'll take it up from there, Tony. Yeah, sure, Bertie. And, and, and thank you for having me um, on the on the programme. And it's a great uh, pleasure and to be with you and an honour and to pay tribute to your leadership throughout the whole of this because you're one of the people without whom this would definitely never have happened. Um, so I think that the, 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 the most important thing is to to know that we were both very committed at the time of our election in the respective countries to moving the Northern Ireland process forward. I mean, John Major had, had laid um, some really important groundwork, but the, the been an IRA ceasefire had broken down. But when I was elected, I was absolutely determined that this would be one of the, the central issues. Um, I think there was a bit of scepticism in the people around me that this was wise, but I was very determined um, that that I should make it a top priority. And indeed, the first speech I made after becoming prime minister, the first formal major speech, was in was in Northern Ireland, um, and was designed to try and kickstart a renewal of the peace process. 
Tony Blair took the opportunity of his first prime ministerial visit to the North to announce an initiative on the peace process. He said he was making one further effort to secure a new IRA ceasefire. British officials, he said, would talk to Sinn Féin, provided events on the ground do not make that impossible. But he also warned Republicans they wouldn't be allowed to hold the political talks to ransom. His speech was welcomed by the SDLP and by unionists. Sinn Féin said it was disappointed. I am prepared to allow officials to meet Sinn Féin, provided events on the ground, here and elsewhere, do not make that impossible. This is not about negotiating the terms of a ceasefire. We simply want to explain our position and to assess whether the Republican movement genuinely is ready to give up violence and commit itself to politics alone. I think after that speech, you you, you laid down fairly clearly the terms and then I was elected just a few weeks later. Uh, Our first mission was to try and get the uh, Sinn Féin to engage with the Sinn Féin, which which, which was kind of my task at the time. Um, They had seen uh, that you'd made this a priority and then we managed to get the the, the ceasefire back on in, in July, just before the holiday period. Of course, at that time, as you recall, every July, August was difficult because you had Drum Cree and Gervahi Road and all those issues that we had to deal with year in, year out. Um, thankfully, they don't create too much fuss nowadays, but they, they certainly took a lot of your time and my time at, at, at that stage. So I suppose the, the big decision we made at, when looking back, Tony, and being over this is this was the first time Sinn Féin were going to be in the talks. So you said that we'd September would we would start the talks and, you know, that it was a short period from the ceasefire uh, to starting the talks. Uh, that was going to cause problems with the, the unionists. And the first real setback that we, we got was DUP left the talks. Uh, Bob McCartney and his group left the, the 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 talks, and David Trimble stayed stayed in. Um, but that that was risky because I suppose we reflect on if if David hadn't stayed in that time, we 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 were on a no starter. Yeah, for sure. One of the things is really difficult, I think, for people to understand now because you know for for. Um, 25 years, as it were, we, we've 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 had the Good Friday Agreement and 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 the peace process. But I mean, I grew up as a as a child with the troubles in Northern Ireland. My my family on my mother's side had come from Donegal. I, I was very familiar with with Ireland, um, and you know, throughout then. My, my period growing up in the 70s and 80s and, and, and even early 90s, I mean, every day you were hearing the news would often, I mean, maybe two or three times a week would, would leave with bad news out of Northern Ireland of one form of disagreement or terrorist attack or killing <clears throat> or pleas from victims of the troubles. And, you know, so there was just this enormous legacy of bitterness and when Margaret Thatcher had tried to resolve things in the 1980s, that had all fallen apart. There'd been the attempts in the 1970s. So, you know, we were in a situation where it was obviously going to be very, very delicate. And I think my my aim was to do two things in that initial period. It was to say to the unionists, I believe in the union and the principle of consent that as long as a majority of people in Northern Ireland want it, Northern Ireland remains part of the United Kingdom, that is a rock solid principle upon which I will stand. And to say to the um, Republicans, however, then Sinn Féin, however, if you're prepared to be part of a process that forswears violence and embraces negotiation, the door is open and we'll take risks for peace. Now, obviously, as you rightly say, you're always balancing because there are people on the Republican side who were going to accuse their leaders of selling out. There are people on the unionist side who are going to accuse their leaders of selling out. You know, this in the end is the test of leadership. As I always say to people, the real test of a leader is whether, not whether you're prepared to say yes to the people supporting you, whether you're prepared to say no and to take a, a, a different view that they may not, they may not like, but that's the essence of leadership. And we were lucky that David Trimble 
you know, did have that capacity to lead. And, and, and Logan, as you and I know about David, he could be a difficult person to deal with. He, he was, in the end, truly prepared to put the interests of Northern Ireland first. And so, you know, we managed to keep the thing, you know, afloat when it could easily have, uh, have capsized in some right at the very beginning. Yeah, and I think when David stayed in, we, we got the talks going. They were difficult. I mean, George Mitchell, who I've been talking to, remembers those early months um, as very difficult. He, everyone spoke to the chair. Nobody would speak to each other. They'd look at the roof and, and all, of, all of the things that we, we got used to at, at, at the start. And of course, the, the great thing was it was the first time they were all in the room. So I think that was the huge, huge success. It was difficult to believe when you look back that the conflict had been going on for 30 years. The troubles had been going from bad to worse. Uh, and that particular time, you know, had been quite bad. But the run the run up to Christmas, um, I suppose that, you know, September to, to Christmas, very little was achieved. Uh, probably the parameters of what the issues were were set out. And then, Tony, we came to the Christmas where, you know, the talks broke mid-December. And, you know, everyone thought we'd get a bit of a rest and a bit of a break, but uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, Billy Wright was shot in the prison um, by, by Republicans. Then there were atrocities by the IRA. There were atrocities by the people associated with Gary McMichael's party. So the, the talks, because they hadn't been progressing well, um, they had decided that we'd have a meeting in London. You organised a meeting in Lancaster House. And then I organised a meeting in Dublin. Uh, both meetings were terrible because the locations were lovely, but they, they, the meetings were terrible because uh, the, the meetings were about you know, atrocities and conflicts. And do you remember that period? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely do. And I also, re- I also remember that yeah, the, 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 the environment of the buildings were lovely and the talks were terrible. And actually... After the Good Friday Agreement, when we had all the consequential negotiations, I remember saying to my guys, I at least want to go somewhere nice and I'm going to have these meetings that are total hell. This is meetings, I at least want to be in surroundings that are, that are pleasant. But you know, it was very difficult at that period. Most people didn't give it much of a chance of success, to, to, be, to be frank. And so, you know, the people, I mean, it's just hard to imagine this now. But the people engaged in the meetings were much more worried about losing their internal position or credibility than they were about really reaching out to the other side. And so it was the the, the meetings were pretty fraught. Now, what was happening, though, was that we were getting, and George Mitchell played an important part in this, getting a sense of what might be the underlying principles of of any agreement, the different strands and so on. But at that point, I think it's fair to say that we may have believed there was a chance, but I think most of the participants thought, look, this is we've been through this dance many, many times. It's not worked, and it's highly unlikely to work now. I think one other thing that, that was really important, and I think this is a great thing, again, for students of, of, of history. In one of the problems in, in the whole relationship between Britain and Ireland was that, I mean, it, it had been marked by centuries of, of, of bitterness and conflict and hatred. And, you know, the, the relationship between the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom and the British government, I mean, they were historically pretty bad, right, <laughs> for, for very obvious reasons. And I think, and this was the importance, I think, of our own relationship in this, I think you did have a new generation in the Republic, in the UK, obviously. We both had these election victories that, in a sense, were the, were the harbingers of a new set of attitudes. Really important, we were both in Europe. And in the European Union, we often cooperated together, worked together. And therefore, the external context for the conflict was was kind of it was softening all of these traditional and historical differences, and we were starting to think of ourselves, the Irish and the British, of having things that we could do in common together, 
So outside, never mind the peace process of Northern Ireland, in the broader context of the island of Ireland and Britain, there was a, a different sense and a different attitude and that created a context in which even if those people internal to the process were still pretty much locked in their traditional positions, you and I were both in the situation of saying, look, you know, we're about to enter a new millennium. There's going to be a completely different world out there. We're partners in Europe. We've got a massive amount of things in common. We could do fantastic business and trade with each other. Come on, there's got to be a different way forward. And that, and that I think, was, in the end, an important part of the impetus for a final agreement, because over time, I think that also influenced the people inside the Northern Ireland cauldron of politics. During these St. Patrick's Day events, I will speak with the party leaders who have come here to Washington. I will tell all of them on all sides the same thing. I will say it as clearly and emphatically as I possibly can. This is the chance of a lifetime for peace in Ireland. You must get it done. St. Patrick's Day, I did the traditional visit and I, I briefed our, our colleague and a friend, uh, Bill, and I, I, I told him that you know, George Mitchell had consulted you and I about setting a final date and that he, 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 was, he had reckoned he had listened to everything very patiently and very committed to the process, uh, but he wanted to get back uh, to, to his wife and young, young child, back to Heather, and I think his child was about six months old then. Um, so he, he set that day. So um, we came back then 20th of March or so. And then all of a sudden, we, we only had about, you know, 30 days to, to, to go, Tony. And, you know, nothing really agreed, but we had that great mantra. Uh, nothing agreed till everything is agreed, which was a great, great line that we used. Um, but that, that, that starting that few weeks into that few weeks, of course, as you just said a few minutes ago, nobody thought we were going to be successful, and that was really um, the Belfast Telegraph poll, um, uh, which said 5% believed that we, we would get success. So uh, that, that was kind of a bad poll rating, <laughs> and that was only about two weeks out. So if you could take us through, as you, as you remember, your recollections of, of, of that few weeks, Tony, in, in whatever order you want to take them. Yeah, no, it was... Um it was a strange time because there was this negotiation going on. The George and the George Mitchell was talking with all the parties, but and I was getting reports, you know, every day of what was happening. You know, the reports were pretty downbeat most of the time, but then there were thoughts. Well, there at least there's an outline agreement that's going to be put to the parties, and there was always a debate as to. A lot of people around me said, "Look, you're a, you're a new prime minister." You know, you've got a whole lot of domestic agenda items here. Just be careful you don't go put your whole premiership on the line for this Northern Ireland agreement. It looks pretty distant to us, okay, because the vibes that are coming out are, are not great. And so in the, in the run-up to actually coming to Northern Ireland to, you know, inverted commas, rescue the process, there was quite an internal debate amongst my own folk, not, not not because people didn't believe in the importance of the process, but just because they frankly thought it just, just doesn't look as if it can it can succeed. And I, it's one of the interesting reflections I have sometimes that if I'd been longer in government and known how much can go wrong in government, <laughs> I might have been not so naive to think <laughs> that you could go to, <laughs> to Belfast and rescue the thing. I might just have thought, oh, it's never going to happen. But... It, it's so in the end, you know. Well, as you know, I, I you and I spoke at, at the time. I thought, come on, let's go, let's go and give this one last shot. Yeah, and then I, I suppose when we come into it, there were so many issues, Tony. They, there are three strands. I mean, we. We we had our own you know difficulties trying to get those across the line. Funny enough, they 
of the third strand, the east-west one, you and I had kind of resolved that we that wasn't a problem. Uh, it had been a problem for about 800 years, but it, it wasn't a problem during that period. Strand won the internal position in, in Northern Ireland and then, of course, the, the north-south arrangements. But even apart from that, um, when you look back now and talk to people, I mean, you, you think of the, the size of the issues. Um, and I talk now Northern Ireland, they have their, their problems, but they're minor compared to like prisoners decommissioning the fundamental reform of the policing, you know, the change of the criminal justice system, demilitarization, which you you successfully carried out, which w- was was difficult. There were enormous issues as we went into that last week, Tony. Yeah, there were there were huge issues. There were issues of long-standing disagreement and grievance on on both sides. Um, and they were to resolve them. This was the important thing, really, about the whole process. To resolve them, the parties had to escape their comfort zone because their comfort zone was, I mean, indulgence is, is not the right word to, to, to but, but, but they, they sat within that comfort zone <laughs> very comfortably. You know, in other words, the, the notion of releasing people from from prison who'd committed serious criminal offences and murdered people, the idea that you change the police force, um, the notion that you you ended up with a, an actual structured engagement with the Republic of Ireland. I mean, these things were all fantastically difficult for the unionists, for for the republicans and the the nationalists. A lot of it depended on trust uh, to the. For, with the British government, it required a, a big leap of imagination and determination. And this is where, you know, in the end, I will say to people about a peace process, you're never going to get a peace process that succeeds unless you get really imaginative leadership amongst the parties that are engaged in the struggle. Because the easiest thing for them to do is to stay in their comfort zone. Um, and the hardest thing for them to do is to exit it because you don't you don't know then what the result may be. And you know one of the things that Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness used to say to me during the course of this, they'd say, "Look, if you end up doing a bad job for the Labour Party, and they, you know, they're just going to be angry at you. You know, if we end up doing what our guys consider a bad job, we're dead." So it's, uh, and, you know, many other people will die along with us. So it's, it's you know, this is, this is an issue of huge sensitivity. And David Trimble would say, if we lose this, if, 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 if I misjudge the moment to, to take the unionist community to a new place, you're, you, this situation is not going to be, you're not going to return to the status quo before the negotiations. It's going to be even worse because you'll have had this failure to reach agreement. So it, this was what made it, difficult. And I think what happened with the process in the end was two things. I think there were a set of principles that did make sense at the heart of the of the agreement, number one. And number two, I think is I think we were lucky in one sense that the nature of this negotiation, putting everyone together in what became, as you as you know, a, a kind of very high profile, high risk, high gain setting, it, it, in the end, it kind of, it almost tipped people out of their comfort zone just because they, they thought, well, we're going to, otherwise we're just, we're going to spend several days here with just a monumental failure on our hands. I, I suppose as we got down to the last few days, the, the thing that's remembered by, by everybody, um, and I know having been in, in some classes with, with students, 18 years of age, 17, 18, 19 years of age, they've read and studied about your, your famous quote about the hand of history in the last few days. A day like today, I mean, it's not a day for sort of sound bites, really. Um, we can leave those at home, but I feel, the, I feel the hand of history on our shoulder in respect to this. I really do. And I just think we need to acknowledge that and respond to it. Now, maybe it's impossible to find a way through. Maybe even with the best faith in the world, you can't do it but it's right to try. So I'm here to try. 
And of course, you said it wasn't a soundbite, so it wasn't a soundbite. But um, hey, can, can you recall that that moment? Because it 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 is recalled by everybody, I think, on the island of Ireland. It, it was really the most ridiculous thing to say. So I, I, I you know, because I, I got there and, and then realised the thing was going to complete breakdown. And you, of course, had your own personal tragedy because your mother was very ill and then, you know, sadly passed away actually at the very beginning of this process. So. It was, but I was. I actually remember standing in the in Northern Ireland and coming out to greet the journalist, and actually beginning quite authentically and deliberately saying, "This is not a time for sound bites," <laughs> and, and delivering the mother of all sound bites, which is a bit absurd. Um, and, but it, the phrase came into my mind. On the on the moment, and people always thought we well, must have prepared that, but it, it, I really didn't. Bertie, at this point, I do want to say, you know, your own role in this was incredibly important. Um, I mean, because if if I had been interacting with a a Taoiseach, an Irish Prime Minister, that was either not fully committed or was not prepared to really push the boundaries. I don't think we would have got through those those days because you were working the Republican national side the whole time. I was trying to work the unionist side. Um, you were then in several meetings with me, and I, I remember you know you were absorbing a fair amount of impoliteness, frankly, from some of the parties, as indeed I was. But you know I felt for you at points uh, in the course of it. But you just you took it all in a. Uh, you know, a very relaxed way. And we just kept, we kept at it. Now, the principles that we were talking about were very important. So you had the principle of consent, okay, that's what the unions always wanted. That was their, um, that was the thing that they really needed in the negotiation. And then on the other side of the, the scales, to balance that, you had the fair treatment, of um, the nationalist um, Catholic community in, in, in Northern Ireland. You had the, the reform of the institutions in order to give proper expression to that. So you had that fairness and principle of consent. That was a coherent intellectual construct for the peace deal. And then you had the three strands, as you say, you know, inside Northern Ireland, the, the east, east, west, and north, south. And I think, therefore, we we were having to struggle through the negotiation. That is absolutely true. But there was, and I think this again is important for peace process, there was an intellectual coherence about what we were trying to, to, to get agreed. And I think that did help. And although, you know, as you know, at several points during the course of that negotiation, the thing looked, we, we thought we'd lost it. I mean, ultimately, it was just, it was just a, absolute determination to drive this thing through uh, that I think you know it's it's an interesting thing in the end we were both just sitting sitting astride the, the the coach driving it so so fast that people just they came along with us but I don't think it would have happened if the basis of it hadn't been essentially something that that reasonable people could see was justified. Yeah, and I think that's probably why it's 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 still the the test of time and most most of the issues. I mean, very few of the issues have not been followed through, and certainly if you look at the whole list, the, the top ten have been uh, implemented and maybe not perfectly. But there's no such thing as a, a perfect peace process anywhere in the world, or maybe a perfect anything. You were dealing with a very different cultural problem as well. I mean, I, I always say to people that when you were dealing with the Unionists and the Nationalist Republicans in Northern Ireland, I mean, it's not dissimilar in one sense to the Israelis and Palestinians, in the sense that in addition to all the, the other obvious issues, people kind of thought in a different way. I mean, the Unionists were extremely literal, you know, very quick to fall out with you. And, you know, for, 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 for obvious reasons, felt most of the world was was against them, right? 
Whereas the Republicans, the nationalists, would be very expensive. You know, they basically understood that most of the world was with them. <laughs> so even if it was difficult inside, you know, they, in one sense, they were easier to deal with, although in other senses, more, more, more difficult. So there was this kind of sort of cultural divide. And for someone like David Trimble to have the leadership skill to navigate that with his own people, and ultimately, I think, really to say to them, okay, I have taken the decision as leader, I'm going for this. You know, that was, that was a huge thing to do because as you and I will both recall, when we announced the actual agreement at the end, I mean, the, the Reverend Ian Paisley was outside with, a, with I think, protesting on the, on the lawn as we made the, the speech, although ultimately, and to be fair, and it was a very important, he too, um, showed the leadership that allowed the thing finally to come into to being um, several years later. And of course, one of the things that happened in the course of this whole process was that once you got the agreement and it did have this coherence in it, of course, the implementation afterwards, each part of the implementation was his own agony, his own chapter of, of disagreement and difficulty and discussion, debate and... <laughs> <laughs> until you finally managed to get an agreement. And then one of the big changes I had to make was to change Articles 2 and 3 of the Irish Constitution. And of course, we it wasn't to be triggered until um, the institution set up. So and then went and we went through all ninety eight and you know we we got over Oma with the help of 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 the the victims and the people there's no doubt about that, and then we went all the way to December ninety nine before the institutions were set up for the first time. Now I'm not going to go through all the times that the institutions went up and down because that was a bit like a yo yo, but for different reasons. But that 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 first um. You know, this this was really groundbreaking that December 99, we changed the constitution then, the institutions were set up and we had, you know, Catholic Protestants, we had nationalists, Republicans, Unionists, Loyalists uh, sitting down together for the first time, maybe other than a little bit in 1974, but Republicans weren't there at that stage. So this was the first time, you know, since since the foundation of Northern Ireland back in 21, uh, that we had everyone together. So, so this this was real re- real history, Tony. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, it was also people were then starting to realise that there were huge benefits that came with peace. You know, the economy started to grow substantially. People liked the freedom that came with peace. So, you know, we still had a lot of difficult issues because it was another several years before the thing really was put put down more securely. But no, it was a huge moment. And, you know, those times we were describing earlier when people were deeply skeptical that there was ever going to be an agreement. By the time you get to the turn of the, the millennium, there was a belief it could work and a willingness to make it work. I think there were a few a few issues and that we just touch on them briefly. Prisoners, um, the release on licence, and I think it's always important to, 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 to say that it was a licence. They Now, 25 years back, we, we have plenty of research to show that the amount of re-offending prisoners that created any difficulty you could count on a hand, um, which, which was extraordinary. Um, even though you and I worried a lot about that issue, but but that wasn't the the issue. We we had the reform of policing where you got Chris Patton in to, to set up that commission and we got people recommended by me and America and by you to sit on that commission. And that worked out extraordinarily well. You, you'll be glad to know, Tony, in all, all my, my chats on, on, on this, uh, that right across the board, whether it was Peter Robinson, whether it was Sinn Féin, whatever it was, that the, the view on policing, they now see it as kind of a world standard of policing. And, um, you know, that, that, that worked out uh, really well. Decommissioning, it, it depends who you're talking to. Some people say it was dragged out too long. That's probably my own feeling. I, I wish we had been able to convince Republicans to move quicker. Others would say that the fact that the arms were beyond use was the key issue. Um, 
Uh, and of course, we, we know that my, my, my biggest regret about that is probably that it did damage David Trimble. But I, I think across the issues, and um, then the one I want to mention in particular, Tony, because across the border, um, in Ireland, and the reason that we the kind of the border vanished was because you actively and personally took an interest in the demilitarisation. You'll recall the watchtowers and the, all the technology, which are all gone, and there's never an incident on the border now, and hasn't been for 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 over twenty years. So I don't in in any order of those issues, Tony. But there there were huge successes, and I suppose you know decommissioning being one that drove you and I mad. <laughs> Yeah, there were many, many long nights and, and, and debates about that. Policing, I think, was a great success. You know, I paid huge tribute to uh, Chris Patton. I think he did a great job on it, <clears throat> really intelligent. Um, again, he constructed a framework that people thought was reasonable. Um, and, you know, again, people should remember what a huge thing this was because i remember having a conversation with martin mcginnis when he said to me you know this thing has got to be got right because you would understand what i'm going to be saying i'm going to be saying to young people that have been fighting the british state and been fighting for a united ireland that you guys should be joining the police force in northern ireland and enforcing the law in Northern Ireland, which is still going to remain part of the United Kingdom. And you're going to be, a, in one sense, an instrument of, um, you know, the, the security apparatus that's still within that United Kingdom. And, and that's true. So it was a big, big step for the Republicans. And of course, for the unionists, what they, they feared was that the end of the IUC would be the, the, the end of protection for their community. But it just turned out... Um, in, in, a, in, a, in a good way. The decommissioning, yeah, it was, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about these peace processes is that you do have to, once you get this agreement and then, you know, whatever it is, you, you, you have a whole lot of consequential things you have to implement. You've got to bear in mind always that you don't have an agreement and then trust is immediately established. You have an agreement and you have a chance then over time to make that trust that is at that moment of creating the agreement quite superficial to put down roots. You have the ability to do that once you have the agreement, but it takes time to put those roots down. And the unionists quite rightly were saying, if, if, you, if you don't have decommissioning, then you know, effectively, we've agreed a peace deal with people who are still retaining the ability to conduct an armed struggle at, at any point in time and hold that over us and you as a negotiating tactic. So the union's position is completely reasonable on this. For the for the Sinn Féin, obviously the IRA, they were kind of, yeah, but you, you've given us all these promises about policing and fairness and justice, but how do we know it's actually going to be delivered? So that with the decommissioning, you know, you needed, you needed just, I think, to recognize frustrating though it was, it was always going to take time. And the, the idea that you put the weapons beyond be use as opposed to handing them in, right? You know, that required creativity. And again, that's a really important element in the, in the process of peacemaking. You've got to be creative. I mean, it was a bizarre notion. You put them beyond use. What does it really mean? How exactly do you do it? Well, we went through all the ups and downs of that, but in the end, it, it served its purpose. Demilitarization. I mean, I had a lot of disagreement within the British system. And I think, again, this is where you've got to be, you know, all the way through, a lot of the advice I received and it's quite interesting to reflect on this because, again, it's got, I think, implications for other types of peace process. I mean, I was constantly told, well, the, the IRA are not really serious about this, you know, they're, they're, they're retaining their ability to go back to violence, and they will, and, you know, this is a tactic, it's not a true commitment. And in the end, what I decided, this is one of the important 
things that the people most prominent in the peace process have to engage deeply with the parties. I remember actually having a conversation finally with the people from within our security system who were saying this, not in a bad way, they were just saying, look, this is what we're hearing, this is what, you know, I had to have the conversation at the end to say to them, look, my judgment, I'm making my own judgment because I'm talking to these people, right? And my judgment is that what they're telling their folk is what they need to tell them to pull them through this process, but actually they are sincere in the end. And that's my judgment, I'm going to go with that judgment. And with the demilitarization, it was very similar because in the end, you know, there was a, you're bound to take a risk when you do that. You know, you, you do that and then something terrible happens. People say, well, it's really your responsibility. You got rid of the, you know, the watchtowers and, and uh, look what's happened. So I think, again, one of the important things out of this is that at a certain point in the process, you have to take risks. I mean, you took it over the Irish constitution. I mean, it was a tough thing. I remember at the time, people, a lot of people thought, well, this is a pretty fundamental thing in the history of the Republic that you're changing. So I think this, one of the themes that runs throughout the whole of what we're talking about here in the peace process is the fundamental idea of leadership that ultimately is very hard. Yeah, well, I think when you look back on a 25 years, it's a good span to look back. And um, there were only about 10 official crossings uh, during the Troubles. Um, after all those watchtowers and road blockages were removed, Tony, there, there are now hundreds of crossings. And in the last 20 years, there, there's been no incidents um, uh, across these areas. So... I, I think it, it speaks for itself. I mean, it, it, it's the, the decision speaks for itself, but it was a very important because it did unite those communities that were in the border areas of communities that were were both um, nationalists and 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 unionists, Protestants and, and Catholics. So we we move on a, a, a bit, um, Tony. We, we we move to a new position. We had spent a lot of our life dealing with long meetings with the SDLP and. Um, uh, dealing with the UUP, but then the the electoral position changed in Northern Ireland. Uh, we continued to deal with all the parties we always did. Um, I always fondly remember you saying when the Women's Coalition were coming, you always cheered up because uh, we weren't going to get as much grief as we did off everybody else. But uh, and I, I I concur with that. Um, but then we were dealing with a new situation. There was the election. Uh, the DUP became the dominant party in the Unionist side. Sinn Féin became the dominant party. It was really a huge change. Um, but we, we had to move with the will of the people and the, the will of the people was that we now had to try and uh, get the institutions back up and running again uh, and deal with Dr Paisley um, uh, and deal with Jerry Adams and, and, and Martin McGuinness. Um, so, you know, th- th- this this was probably our, 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 our final our final push to get things happening but it, it so we had nobody outside we, we'd started off the day you and I started off we'd Sinn Féin outside we'd DUP walking out um, and here we were we were dealing with the two main parties and uh, you know years had moved on but it, 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 it certainly was a, a different challenge yeah it was there it was it's one of the things that always it's it's slightly discomforting to think that the two groups that really, you know, took the initial risks, you know, going back over time to the UUP, the SDLP, where, where in the end became more marginalised politically in the process, but that's the way it, that's the way sometimes it, 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 it happens. This was a much more difficult group of people to put together. But I think what happened in the end is that both communities decided, right, we're in the final game now. And we need to have people that are going to protect our interests. And I think that ultimately what happened was that Sinn Féin were prepared to make the final completed moves um, around issues like like, like decommissioning and giving up violence and violence, not just of the paramilitary sort directed at uh, the British state, but also, you know, their, their own kind of informal policing of neighborhoods and, and so on. 
I'm, that when it was combined with Ian Paisley and I mean, I mean to the view ultimately that his community really didn't want peace. Um, you know that that put them together, but it was a and and in the end, by the way, they. I mean, you will remember this, and in, in uh, I think it was April <clears throat> two thousand and seven, shortly before I left office, and they finally got Ian Paisley and Mark McGuinness installed um, as the as the as the government for Northern Ireland. It was a pretty extraordinary occasion, and I think you know if you and I had gone back in our youth and imagined that those two would be sitting down. You know, in apparent harmony, making jokes with each other, I think we would have thought we were dreaming. Ian Paisley and I never had a conversation about anything, <laughs> not, not even about the weather. And now we have worked very closely together over the course of the last seven months, and there hasn't been an angry word between us. We have had our political squabbles and fights. I think we have come to the end of that. I think that peace has come. Uh, there will be a fight for peace. You don't want peace. You have to fight to keep it. In in fairness, I suppose we got them together, and you know they they worked the institutions well, and it it, it was a strange thing that the the difficulty since, and we don't have to deal with those issues, but the difficulty since had nothing to do with the constitutional position or any of the big issues we were dealing with. One breakdown in the north has been. Uh, to do with uh, an environmental scheme, to do with um, grants, nothing to do with any of the, the kind of an issue could happen any parliament anywhere in the in the world. And then they they got into a, another um, tangle recently about it. Uh, the one thing we never discussed was that the UK would leave the EU, but we we need all day to to talk about the ramifications of that. And that is the thing that creates the difficulty. But I suppose Tony, just to your views on the the lessons learned and and how we go forward for 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 the people because i think the, the there there is there is a sense that uh there's not the same difficulties there's not the same animosities or enmities of of the past there's no doubt about that northern ireland is is thriving but it could even thrive more you know it's it's great opportunities in the new situation um but there is that there is that sense of 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 worry still around, you know, not about violence, but about just just how things will will work out into the future. I think there are two other things that are very important. One is that you need to keep that that spirit of determined commitment to peace, even though some of the issues you're dealing with are more, you know, that they don't appear so dramatic and so important as the ones that we dealt with at the beginning of the process. So, you know, whether it's because of the, the difficulties caused by, by um, the UK leaving the European Union or whether it's, it's, it's internal political problems, it's important that the current leadership understands, you know, and, and never forget how bad things used to be before we had the peace process and how much better they are today and how much the possibilities of the future depend on honoring that commitment uh, from the past. I think that's really important, that issue of leadership remains. And I think the second thing is that, you know, one of the extraordinary things about the Northern Ireland peace process is that the end game of the future of Northern Ireland was left unresolved. <laughs> yeah, if you look at the Israeli-Palestinian issue, for example, because again I've been involved in that, in principle there is an agreement to a two-state solution. So, in principle, there is an agreement as to the end state, which is two states. In in the case of the Northern Ireland peace process, we agreed not not to resolve that that question as the status of Northern Ireland because of the fundamental nature of the disagreement between the two communities. But what we did was we created a situation not in which the border didn't matter in constitutional terms, but in practical terms, where people could see that as well as the, the fact that constitutionally Northern Ireland was part of the United Kingdom, remained part of the United Kingdom, the principle of consent was there, the relationship between the Republic and the North between the Republic and the UK meant that 
it just mattered less as a fundamental issue upon which people fell out about. So it, it was it was a really important thing that your your peace process in the end it doesn't just depend on a formal agreement. It has to, in the end, it, it is emotional and cultural. It's about society. It's about the economic opportunities people can have. It's about a whole panoply of issues that go to make up people feeling either optimistic about the future or, or not. And that, I think, is a really important thing that no matter how much you negotiate, no matter what you agree, in the end, for the a peace process to take root, it's got to ensure that the next generation coming after the previous one that was mired in conflict, that that next generation is not just going to live in a formal peace, it's going to live in a in a society which offers better opportunity. Well, I think that's good advice and a good challenge for the for the future. Uh, Tony, I, I really appreciate you taking part in this and. Uh, uh, I've enjoyed all the all the years we worked together and all the all the nice castles and places we had meetings uh, um, with the exception of castle buildings. But um, <laughs> I, I I do I do appreciate your time, Tony, and look forward to meeting you again soon. And um, regards to the family. Thanks so much, Bertie. All my very best to you and to all your family, and uh, we'll see you soon. In the next episode of As I Remember It, I am absolutely pissed off. We're trying to make this thing work. And those who have no interest in making it work seize upon two men being killed to exploit it and to bring this process down. He was alone. And sometimes I felt he was alone even in his own party. I need to go back to my people with a big red slap on my face that you guys have given me and say, look what you've created. Sinn Féin can barely say the words Northern Ireland. It's always the north of Ireland. Some of them would actually walk to the wall and walked past me facing the wall. I looked around the table one day and I thought, I wonder, will anybody at this table be killed? As I remember it, it's a News Talk original podcast. The executive producer is Mark Simpson. The producers, Jess Kelly and Sandra Honan. Sound mixing, Lachlan Hart. Video producer, Rory Walsh. Archive audio used in this episode was from RTE, BBC and ITN go to newstalk.com forward slash Good Friday Agreement for bonus material including full interviews videos a timeline of the peace process and a glossary of who's who in the Good Friday Agreement 